Stay hungry, stay foolish. name on the innovation show it gives me great pleasure to welcome jeffrey j fox author and ceo of fox and company welcome to the show jeffrey thank you delighted to be here there's a personal story behind this that when i was retiring from my rugby career that i was educated by you on my commute every day with audiobooks and i've read nearly every book including how to become a rainmaker how to become ceo how to become a great boss how to make big money in your small business, the dollarization principle, how to land your dream job, how to be a fierce competitor, and the list goes on and on. And those books are all available online and on foxandcompany.com. So I'd love to, Jeffrey, talk about, firstly, what is a rainmaker? You know, the American Indians, the Navajos and all that in the old days, they would have a medicine man. And the medicine man would go around and sing and chant and whatnot, and the rain would fall, and the crops would flourish, and the tribe would live. So the rainmaker then, he brought the rain. The rainmaker is that person, he or she, in an enterprise that brings in the money, that brings in the big customer, that saves the big customer, that brings in the big money, and not on a discounted basis, but brings in at the full gross margin. So rainmakers are what make enterprises able to pay salaries and utilities and rent, et cetera, et cetera. And many, many small businesses, three people or less, three, two, or one, someone there is a rainmaker or they're going to go out of business. About five to 10% of all salespeople in the world are true rainmakers. You also mentioned that rainmaker can be somebody within the company who sells an idea. It, it doesn't just have to be the person who brings in the big cash, although they oh. are the main rainmaker. A rainmaker is somebody that will, directly or indirectly, create something that brings in the money. So someone who can, who's a brilliant innovator of new products or what new technology may or may not be able to sell it herself or himself, but can can sell the company on the idea selling inside and the company goes forward with it. I recommend to the audience that they read a book called The Last Days of Night, N-I-G-H-T. It's about the struggle between Westinghouse and Edison and Nikola Tesla on the future of electricity. It's all about innovation, rainmaking, changing the way the world is. It's a good book on innovation is great. The answer is yes. Rainmakers are people that make things happen. I'd love to, at the end of the of the chat about rainmaking, actually come back to you and and you, you know your own career. But let, let's keep going with rainmaking because there's a nice progression that you do in all your books. And the books for our audience to let you know are all built around stories. So it's very very easy. You can pick it up, read a chapter, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I kind of went through my collection before our chat and picked out a couple of uh, nuggets, but one of the things I find, Jeffrey, is in today's world, you have all these tech startups, et cetera, but one of the things they lack is customers. And the, the other thing that's lacking in the world is as it gets more and more digital, there's, there's a lack of humanity in sales. And that is, no matter what anybody says, the, one of the most important things. And you talk about the basics, such as manners, such as language, 
Lucas's question form and asking for agreement. Can we get into some of those basics that you talk about? First of all, the most important thing to have when you're starting a new company or launching a new product, the most important thing to have is not the financing, not the people, not the management, not the marketing plan, not the business plan, not the technology, nothing. The most important thing is to have a customer or be certain you will have a customer. No customer, no nothing. And in fact, in Silicon Valley, years ago, I was out there with somebody that said that the formula for success in in Silicon Valley is 2% technology and 98% marketing. And marketing, of course, is the identification, attraction, getting and keeping of okay customers. So given that, when you look at the digital world today, which is the which everybody is struggling with on many levels, what happens 10 years from now when all these young folks who don't talk to each other, who are walking down the street hand in hand and are texting each other, what are they going to do when it gets to getting a customer? Are they going to email prospects who've never heard of them? Are they going to email an investor? How does that work? If you're selling products, maybe you can rely on salespeople that just go fill shelves. But if you're selling a new product, you're selling sophisticated service, you're selling something that hasn't that's new to the world, how do you do that without talking to customers? And so the modus operandi of marketing people today to send an email, to leave a voicemail, to do a digital ad here or there, it's going to be very difficult for startups and for new because people are going to say, who are these people? I don't know them. The other day, somebody asked me, they said, look, with all the new digital media, the social media, snap this, snap that, internet. Jeffrey, have you discovered any really good social media for rainmakers? I said, yes, I have. And they said, it's amazing. It never gets deleted. The message always gets opened. If the message is good, it always gets acted upon. They said, really, what is that? I said, it's an envelope powered by a stamp where the CEO or the buyer you're sending to hasn't received a letter like that in years. He opens it up and there on your personal stationery or your corporate stationery is dear so-and-so. Jeffrey Fox suggested I call you. He thought you would be delighted with the kind of results we provided his company. It will take me five minutes to show how we can save you a million dollars. People have to understand that today's world is worse, 100,000 times worse than it was 10 years ago when consumers got 3,000 adverts a day in any form there is. Now they get three zillion. And so you've got to be different and breakthrough and so forth. And And if the Pony Express, the United States' original mail carriers across states, were alive, I would send that personal letter and a Pony Express rider and a Zappaloosa horse right into the foyer and lobby of the office building. Everybody would get the message. No, today's uh, marketing people, and I interview them all the time, would rather send out a contact click or something to a million people. What is that worth? Nothing. It's the message, not the media. Digital social media are just that, media. 
the Goodyear blimp is a media. Radio is a media. There's millions of medias that'll come and go. You know, cavemen painted on the walls of the caves in Spain. That's a media. The message is what counts. A guy years ago named Marshall McLuhan or something like that wrote a book called It's Not the Message, It's the Media or something like that. He was wrong then, he's wrong now. It's not the media. All these young marketing people, young salespeople, young managers are falling in love with the media. Digital digital format, da-da-da-da-da. And the messages are dry and dreary and no one's doing anything about it. It's going to get worse. I actually got laughed at for saying this before that the more the world gets digital, the more we need to be human. And by that is what exactly what I'm talking about is that people are, are clinging to their screens. They're not even talking to each other in the office. So how are how is information being shared or how is how are people being mentored or how are you actually getting out there and pressing the flesh, literally meeting your clients? And Again, it probably for me, a lot of this comes from, from the reading of your books just before I, I started into the business world. And you talk about these basic things, for example, like when you're a salesperson, you go out to eat lunch with a client. You're not there to eat lunch. You're there on a sales call. Or right. Those basics are missing. Could we explore some of those principles you talk about, Jeff? I would love to. I will tell you the next rage. The next rage is going to be device-free dinners, family. That's the next rage. The next rage is going to be organizations that say, today, no cell phones in the company. Believe me, it's going to happen. They've got to reverse this inhuman, or whatever the word is, a way to act. So a salesman takes a customer out to lunch. Breakfasts are better, of course, because there's no alcohol involved and the customer's on his way to work or her way to work. And you're not at lunch to eat lunch. It's a sales call. You're at lunch to ask questions. You can't ask questions with food in your mouth. You're there to listen to the answers and take notes. You can't take notes with a coffee cup in your hand. When you're at that lunch, you've got to take the best seat in the restaurant. So that the customer is looking at you, not at the marina and not at the golf course and not at the people coming in to the restaurant. It's only polite. They've spent their time invested in you and they know it's a sales meeting or else you wouldn't have had them there. So you have to have understand that these kinds of things are business from the minute it starts to the minute it ends. You go into that luncheon, you have a hundred questions to ask, you ask them. You take notes, you have an objective in mind, and you move on. Today's upcoming salespeople have to realize that in the end, it's a person, even in a megalopolis company, 10,000 employees, it's a person somewhere that says yes to make that deal happen, to make the revenue flow to your company so you can get paid and have a good living. You think it's going to be done by an email? You might as well put it on the Goodyear blimp. No difference. Same thing. <laughs> that bravery you talk about, I, I remember actually using some of the principles you talk about. And and it does, at the start, feel a little alien. And it's, it takes a bit of guts to do this stuff, but it actually works. And, you know, you, you talk about some of the, like some of the things like taking the best seat. Because that feels like, oh, it should be given the client this privilege oh, totally. of, of that. And that okay. takes a bit of courage. 
What you say is, look, at I'm really delighted that we could meet today. Look, at um, let's just sit like this so that you we, we don't waste any of your time. All you have to say. And if, perchance, you're a salesperson selling it like a sales training program or something like that or advertising or anything in sales and marketing, you let them know. Don't you want your salespeople to do what I just did? Wouldn't you like them to know how to do that? They go, yeah, hire us and we'll teach them how to do it. See, one of the things that uh, your audience has to understand is that if a prospective customer agrees to see you, they're in the buying mode. If they agree to see you and they open up the meeting by saying, your company is the worst company I've ever worked with. I hate you. All your people are terrible. Your price is too high. Your quality sucks and your distribution is late. If they've agreed to see you, they have a need. They open it like that, and you simply say, that's why I'm here. That's how your audience, who are sales and marketing people, should understand every issue and objection they face. That's why I'm here. That's why I wrote this ad. That's why I've designed the package this way. They have to understand it's all about the customer. It's not about the seller. That's why advertisers Uh, use words like we. We are the best. Well, who are you? Who's we? There's a million we's. There's only one you. So it's always got to be about the customer. Everything. Yeah. You know, you talk about you're you're not at lunch to eat lunch and you're you're taking questions. What, What are you trying to get to? with those questions because you talk about killer sales questions and you have uh, you've, uh, several of them and maybe we might touch on some of those killer sales questions but what what are you trying to get out of those meetings at the start well first of all it's a sales call and you know it's a sales call and therefore you have a sales call objective and the sales call objective is not to show literature it's not about you It's always about getting the customer, the prospect, to do something, an action step that leads ultimately to a sale. So let's say your sales call, your first sale with this guy, your your first meeting, your sales call objective might be to get a second meeting. It might be to get all the decision makers' names. It might be to get from the customer how they make a decision what they need to do to decide yes. What is their problem? And if you can solve it in front of the guy, will they be willing to go ahead? So you have to have a sales call objective. And if your audience will get one thing out of this interview is that if they just do some pre-call planning before every sales call, their close to call ratio is going to go in half. That eight calls will now take four. And the first thing you need is a written sales call objective. Put it on a two-by-three index card, sales call objective, to get a meeting next week with this guy's boss. Let's just say that's it. You will have a 20% better closing rate than ever before. Great salespeople, rainmakers, pre-call plan every sales call, whether it's a phone call, which is a voicemail they leave behind, or whether it's a an email or a letter or whether it's an actual face-to-face. They pre-call plan it. They don't wing it. The greatest salespeople called on the customer once a week for 50 years. They don't wing that sales call. 
So if you have a luncheon and you have a sales call objective, and then once you know your objective, you ask these needs analysis questions that help by the quality of the question, the customer to better articulate what's going on, and you understand what you need to do to make the sale. And so it does take guts to do this. On the other hand, the customers agreed to see you. Therefore, they know what's going on. They know it's a sales call. Why did they agree to see you? They have a problem. They have a need. They may not be willing to share it with you because they may have been invested in the decision that created that problem, but they've agreed to see you. What happens with a lot of salespeople is they're afraid to do certain things because they fear rejection. Fearing rejection is legitimate, but it's also part of the game. And when a customer says no, if the customer is in front of you, they've agreed to see you. They have a problem. So if they say no, that means that's a signal to the rainmaker that he hasn't asked an unlocking question. I mean, I asked one time in one of my books, I asked psychologists who asked questions to, to ferret out illnesses and so forth. And I asked a police detective, what's your biggest fear on a, a case? And she said, I don't ask the question that unlocks the case. I failed to ask the no. question. So great salespeople are always asking questions. And if the fear of rejection, you should understand, okay, fine, rejection happens. You know, you know, Mickey Mantle struck out a few times too. So what? You got to go to the plate. They agreed to see you. If you really pre-call plan it carefully, think of all kinds of questions and everything else. Put yourself in the shoes of the customer and you answer this question in pre-call planning, if I were the customer, knowing what I know about the product, the market, et cetera, why would I do business with me? If you can answer that question objectively, factually, honestly, you will, do, you will have an ironclad platform to, for going ahead. Great sales rainmakers, they just assume the sale. They assume it, but they don't wing it. They said, okay, the guys agreed to see me, so we're going to do business. They don't wing it. They pre-call plan it. What's my sales call objective? What objections do I anticipate? How am I going to overcome them? What 30, 40, 50 questions am I going to ask? What, how am I going to move this to the next step? That's what rainmakers do. Face-to-face -face sales calls with, with people that can say yes are rare. One a month, five a year, one a year. I don't know. They're rare. You can't wing it. You talk about killer sales questions. Can we touch on a couple of those? Sure. So one killer sales question, which is a mandatory question, is, and you have to ask it this way, in addition to yourself, Mr. Customer, Mr. Prospect, in addition to yourself, who else will be involved in making this decision? The decision, of course, to go ahead with your product. And what you need to understand is, some people think they're the decision makers and they're not. Some people who are the decision makers, for example, when you sell to the Japanese, they're not. They are the decision makers, but they'll say they're not. So you have to say who in addition to yourself so that you don't embarrass anybody or put them on a spot. Who in addition to yourself will be involved in making this decision? And then you say, when you get the names and the titles, and what might be their concerns? Another great killer sales question, Rainmaker sales question, and this is 
at the start of the game, one of the more important ones, when you're talking to a customer, you're trying to get an appointment, you say to the customer, do you have your appointment calendar handy? So 92% or 99% or whatever of all business people have their appointment calendar handy. And now you say, can we meet Monday at 12 o'clock? No. Wednesday at 6.30 p.m.? No. Friday at 6 a.m.? Yes. Now you have an appointment. So that's another killer sales question. Do you have your appointment calendar handy? Who, in addition to yourself, will be involved in making this decision? Uh, Another one is when you are selling, you have to realize that customers don't buy products or services. They don't buy patents, technology. They don't buy uh, features and benefits. What they buy is the dollarized outcome they're going to get from the product. They don't buy a burglar alarm. They buy reduced burglaries. And each burglary reduced times the value of the burglary, $10,000 is what they buy. They don't buy a gasket. They buy a leak-proof transmission, thereby eliminating the costs of callbacks and reworks and so forth. So customers don't buy things. They invest. And that investment can be a monetary return or an emotional return. So, for example, if a woman goes out and buys a gorgeous dress, she buys that because it makes her feel good. Another person goes out and buys an Alaskan coat because it solves the problem of freezing to death. So people buy to either solve a problem or to feel good. And that's a fact that every salesperson in your audience, a marketing person, management person in your audience must understand. People do not buy features and benefits, product benefits, service benefits, technology or patents. They buy the dollarized outcome they get from your product. When you know that, then you're a salesperson who sells money. You don't go in and say, oh, my lock is made out of, you know, hand-proven turn steel with titanium bearings and all that. Customers don't care about that. They care about what they will get from that product. So in the beginning of the sales call, you ask the customer, if I, the salesperson, if I, the advertiser, if I, the trade show designer, if I can show you how your company will save a million dollars in cost, increase revenues by $2 million, reduce penalties by $50,000. If I can show you that, would that be the basis for doing business? Most customers are going to say, yeah. So you're not talking about products or services. You're talking about the money the customer is going to get. So the killer sales question is a two-part. One, you say to the guy up front, if I can show you how we can save you $40,000 in reduced downtime, would that be the basis for doing business? They said, sure, go ahead, show me. Okay, now the ball's in the salesperson's court. Then you say, well, can I ask you, if, can I ask you, if you, will you look at the facts and decide for yourself? And the customer's thinking, of course I'll decide for myself. What do you think? So therefore, when you present the facts, to show the guy that you can save him $40,000 in downtime, to reject you, he has to first reject himself because he's agreed he will look at the facts and decide for himself. So that's a rainmaker killer question. Now, Aiden, these things cannot be done by a salesperson driving to the client and sitting in the parking lot and figuring this out. You've got to do this pre-call planning. You've got to practice it, and you've got to do it like a pro. But once you get it, 
once you understand what the customer is really buying, they're buying money. They're not buying titanium locks. They're buying the fact that the locks last six years and the other ones last three. When they understand that and you dollarize the difference, then you have an ironclad basis for making a deal. But you have to be a professional. It's just like a, like a professional American football coach. You see that chart he has in front of him, that laminated chart? That's all kinds of situations that are going to come up. And they say, you know, we're going to do this if. That's pre-call planning. That's practice. That's what salespeople have to do. That's what all marketing people, actually all managers have to do, to tell you the truth. Because you're either selling a customer outside or you're selling employees inside, one or the other. Makes a lot of sense. And you're talking about professionalism because there's another thing you talk about. You cover every aspect of sales. The books go way beyond sales because you have other books on how to be a CEO or how to be a great boss. Some of them are basics that, that so many overlook. And for example, be the best dressed person you meet every day. Could we touch on some of those basics? Let's say you're driving down a country road, okay? And you see a sign on the side of the road that's a hand-painted sign. It says, fresh eggs, $2 a dozen. You pull in. You go down a half a mile the same country road, and there's a handwritten painted sign that says, airplane lessons, $25 an hour. You keep going because that airplane sign <laughs> looks bad, okay? You know, who would you rather give your money to? a homeless person on the street, sidewalk or somebody that comes in that appreciates you, that shows and flatters you by being the best dressed person they will meet that day. That doesn't mean they have to come in in a tuxedo, etc. but they have to show the professionalism. And customers want that. Customers want to know they're dealing with somebody that's real, a winner, a professional. They don't want to deal with someone that comes in with ketchup all over the front of their shirt or a car that's smoking and falling apart like, you know, Sanford and Sons. Customers are investing their money. They uh, don't want to lose it. They want to get a return and they want to deal with pros, professionals. If everybody in your audience understands every single day they should be the best dressed person they will meet that day in business. They will win. When yeah. you walk down the aisle of a supermarket and you see a, a, a can of pickles and there's mold and stuff on the inside, do you buy that one or do you buy the one that looks cool and great? It's packaging. <laughs> Everything is about and, – and customers start sizing you up in seconds, in seconds. And they and they yeah. and they can be affronted. That's why I say one of my rules is never wear a pen in your pocket. Why? The pen could leak. You don't want spinach in your teeth when you're talking to a customer. And I, I loved one of the ones you, you gave. It's like always park out back. Oh yeah. A lot of times you go to a customer and you know it says visitor parking, blah blah blah, and you can see the big range of windows and. You know, and it's always in the front because they try to be nice. They're all watching you get out of your car. You get out of the car and you straighten your skirt and you comb your hair and you do this and that. They're watching you. They're making a judgment on you before you've had a chance to show your stuff. 
park in the back where they won't see you, find a way to get in, looking great, all your books are together, all your all your, your samples are regular, you're looking great, and you haven't stumbled out of the car and a beer can falling out after you. So you park in the – it's the little things like that that make a difference. You want to be perfect. You don't want unforced errors. And that's an example. And by the way, I've gotten millions of letters from readers through the years who have told me how that's worked for them. Another one is like, don't drink coffee on the way to a sales call. Like, oh, yeah, don't, of- drink coffee. I, don't drink coffee at a sales call either. You, a sales call is a sales call. Drinking coffee is for Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts. Customers say, we like a cup of coffee. No, thank you. Why? Because you can't take notes with a coffee cup in your hand you can't ask questions drinking coffee, and you can spill it, which is what I get all these letters all the time. I got a letter the other day from a guy that said he read my book and about the coffee and everything, and he had a 1 o'clock or one thirty sales call, and he went to a, uh, a, you know, a dash-in place where you get your food and leave, and he went outside, and he put his coffee cup on the top of his Volkswagen. I remember the car. He, and... And he was getting ready to go in, and the wind blew the coffee all over his shirt and stuff. He had to go get another shirt before a sales call. You don't drink coffee on a sales call. You don't drink coffee on the way to a sales call. Everything is so precious. Sales calls are rare. Sales calls on decision makers, people can say yes, are rare. All of the audience could make a guess right now. How many sales calls have I made in person, on the phone, whatever, to a guy that can say yes and write that down on a piece of paper, then go through your diary for the last year, and you're going to find out you made half as many calls. Yeah. So it's don't squander those those opportunities as well. They're rare. They're rare. They're rare. I'm sure if most of us are honest, we don't prepare the call as as, as much as we could. Only 5%, 5 to 10%. And when we're talking about percentages as well, you talk about closing. So, and, and the lack of people asking for the sale. And you know what? Customers want you to ask. Customers want you to ask them because they don't know exactly how to proceed either. So I would say that, well, our studies vary because it depends. You know, a lot of small businesses, uh, 17 million businesses with three to one people in it tend to be a lot of retail stores and stuff like those guys ask for the order a lot of times. Not always, but they don't ask. They go in and they say, they show everything and they just sit there. They never ask for the order. They're afraid of being rejected. They're afraid of hearing no. And and I will we will do a sales training program or something in the old days with clients, and I'll say, how do you ask for the order? I'll, I'll, first, I'll say, how many of you guys ask for the order? They all raise their hand. I say, okay, how do you ask for the order? And they'll just say something that's not even a question. They'll say, um, they they won't, I I don't even know how to do it because I'm so used to doing it properly, but they don't know how to say, okay, uh, how do we get going? Uh, Can we, can we get, can we get this started today? Do you want a purchase order or can we just bill you? I mean, they've got to pre-call plan that and they've got to practice it and ask it. So they're not uncomfortable asking it, but just think, only not only 10% of salespeople actually ask for the business. And it's not yeah. asking for the order. 
It's asking for the sales call objective for that call that you've pre-established, which is asking the customer for an action that leads to a, leads to a sale. Like, a, would you like to give it a trial? Would you like to visit a, a beta site? Those are the kinds of questions that lead to a sale. They don't have to be exactly asking for the purchase order. Salespeople should. You talked about earlier on buy signals like the customer is meeting you, so they're meeting you for a reason. Right. But say you were introduced by somebody and you go to the meeting and you realize that all the person, they're only meeting you because you got an introduction from someone else. So, so it's actually a dud meeting and you establish that quite quickly. What, what's your advice on something like that? Well, first of all, that means you've made the meeting under false pretenses. You know, like right. I'm going to be in town on this day, or would you like to have a, a drink? Can I take you to lunch? Those are meetings under false pretenses. So with the question you asked is, you have a referral. Uh, that it, it indicates to me, for example, that you had a meeting because someone suggested you meet this person. That means that the salesperson hasn't really vetted that referral source properly and said, look it, I'd like to meet with Sam Jones. I know the guy. Okay, I'll help you. Okay, but I want to make sure he knows why I'm coming. I don't want to just meet him because you said, hey, how you doing? So that whole setting up of that meeting is part of the pre-call planning process. If that's done properly, and referral selling, by the way, is the, one of the most powerful ways to sell. If you get somebody that gives you a, a referral to call on so-and-so, or if they call them for you, that's the most powerful form of selling. But let's say you go to a meeting, and it's a dud. And you say, you know what? I get the feeling from this situation that you met me just because so-and-so brokered this meeting. Is that correct? The guy goes, yeah. I said, okay, look, I'm not going to waste another minute of your time. I'm not going to waste a minute of my friend's capital on setting up this meeting. But could I ask you one question? And, of course, if the salesperson has done pre-call planning and done market research and done all the things that says to the salesperson, this particular customer is a prospect, could be real, you just at the wrong level. You say, look it, I – Geez, I hate that. You know, this is. I don't waste anybody's time. Let me ask you a question: Who in this company is responsible for reducing safety incidents? Who in this company has the major job of innovating new products? Who in this company is responsible for increasing the revenue per salesperson, or whatever you're selling, whatever you're doing? You just ask that question. Yeah. Very likely, you get something, very likely it could be this guy. So a dud sales call, a dud sales call, like the one you suggested, means two mistakes were made. The salesperson hadn't set up the the referencing party properly, make sure that the guy know why you're coming. And number two, did not do enough homework to be able to dance on his feet in the face of the changed facts on the ground. There's another one I love, like stuff is just floating back into my head and it's don't ask a question that you don't care about. So, you know, you see a big stuffed fish above somebody's mantelpiece. You're not going to ask if you actually don't care or when to ask about it. Right, right, right. I don't know if this is true or not. I think it is, but rainmakers have a quality 
that customers like, and it's authenticity. It's genuine. It's being genuine. Even if they're asking an outrageous price for a product, or they're asking the customer to do backflips to make it happen, if they're authentic, honest, genuine, customers like that. When you ask a customer, oh, I see on the wall that you shot that, you have a deer there. What did you do? Jacklight that deer and run it over? Customers know when you're inauthentic, when you're insincere. They know it instantly. If you're asking a question to which you do not care about the answer, you're insincere. Now, you can ask a question to which you already know the answer. That's legitimate, and that's probably smart. You ask questions to which you know the answer because you want to hear what the customer has to say. The le- when you become inauthentic, when you drop jargon to so- show how smart you are, when you use an acronym to, under- to let the customer know that you're hip to their business, you're inauthentic, you're insincere. And in the old days, we called that glib. It's worse. <laughs> it's worse. When you ask a question, trying to show how smart you are, you lose. When it's about them, you win. When it's about you or me, you lose. I've gone into a million places, and customers have said to me, tell us a little something about your background, Jeffrey, and about the background of your company. I can guarantee you this. I've seen it happen. 99% of the people would take that bait. You know what I know? They don't care about my background. They don't care about my company. They only care about themselves. They only care about their problem. They've invited you and they've agreed to see you if they've done their due diligence. I say, I'd be happy to tell you about my background. Can I ask you a few questions first? And an hour and a half later, we're walking out with an assignment. They go, hey, next time we get together, tell us a little something about your background and your company. I see it every day in resume. I'm interviewing right now for one of my clients. I'm interviewing for a, a number of jobs for people. I'm, I'm one of the interviewers. And, you know, when I see a guy at the top of his resume, ABC, Mr. ABC, does comma, PhD, I'm already thinking, oh, brother. Oh, brother. He has to put PhD in the thing. I know people are proud of it. They're proud of their MBAs. They're proud of this. They're proud of that. But the customers don't care. They care what they're yeah. going to get from you. And I have a five-page, not one, five-page resume from someone that I'm going to be interviewing tomorrow for the director of marketing of one of my clients. I'm thinking, if this guy can't put five pages into one, how can he write an ad? How can he write a 30-second radio commercial? How can he write a positioning statement, you know, 10 words long? I'm done with the guy because he's all about himself. And they're all the same language, all the same team leadership, cross-functional, dysfunctional, hyper Who cares? We work uh, a little bit with, with guys that have been wounded and stuff in these in our terrible wars uh, who are sled hockey players. These guys play hockey with uh, on sleds. Regular hockey, every rule is the same except they play on sleds. And so one of the guys, has he's looking for a job in Washington, D.C., and he's a member of the – USA Nationals and 
USA Warriors, I guess, and these guys are, you know, like, you know, 25 purple hearts on the ice at one time kind of thing. And his resume, I, and I, I got it down to one page. And the first thing is 845 patrols in Afghanistan and Iraq. Next question. <laughs> the guy's on 845 yeah. patrols. I'm hiring him. <laughs> I'm hiring yeah. this guy. This guy's resume is talking about, this is what he, is Ernest Hemingway, you you render an idea. You've got to render, he's, this guy's at 845 patrols on foot and in vehicle, in war zones. Do you think he's afraid to go see a customer? I don't think so. You afraid he can deal with problems on the manufacturing floor between? I don't think so. That's what's got to be in, in his resume. That's what he's got to tell. That's what he's got to pitch. I love that, man, because th this is in across all your books as well. And it's like, for example, advice to a babysitter or always hire a paper boy. And I know we talked about that before. That Unfortunately, that, that job is gone in the world because of the, the demise of newspapers. Well, could we touch on that for people with children, for example, to give them some well, well, for example, uh, There's a lot of great jobs starting out, okay? And even in affluent families, kids should have jobs. They should be a caddy at the golf course, or they should work at McDonald's, or they should now, unfortunately, can't deliver paper, papers in the morning or in the afternoon, or they should be babysitters. I mean, that's how people learn about work and jobs. And let's say the babysitter, one of my chapters in my book is something like, you know, when you're a babysitter and you're there and the people leave to go out to dinner and they want to have a nice time, what they don't want to come back to is bedlam. They won't come back. So let's say you're a babysitter and the kids are fighting and they, one kid throws a diaper against the wall and the dog throws up, et cetera. You take care of the kids are insufferable brats and they're ill-disciplined and you finally get them to bed and whatever. When the parents come home and say, were there any problems? You go, no problem. Everything was perfect. Parents know the real deal, but they also know the evening isn't ruined because of their kids. Always be better. Always help the customer, in this particular case, the parents, relax. A paper boy is the greatest discipline of all. I wrote a book called Rain, but a paper boy learned about business. Rain is the name of the kid. He's a 13-year-old paper boy. He delivers the papers in the darkness of New England winters in the morning, and he has all kinds of problems. He runs into bullies. He runs he he runs, uh, mean dogs that kind of snap at him on his bike, and he has to deliver the Sunday papers that weigh more than he does, and all these kinds of things. What character building that is. As a matter of fact, in the beginning of the book, I did some research and I, I give the names of a couple of hundred, I think, or so famous people who were paperboys. People would be amazed who was a paper paperboy. Jackie Robbins, the baseball player, Walt Disney, all kinds of people, uh, generals and captains and presidents and so forth. So, And so when you hire people, looking to hire people, you want to know if they've had that kind of background. What was your first job? I ask people. And they'll say, well, you know, I mowed lawns when I was in high school, or I was a lifeguard at the lo local pool. or You know, you want to know people that understand the work ethic and they've done things and so forth. Um, you know, I really don't care if a guy's an electrical engineer. I, 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 I mean, I think that's a, a notable thing or 
someone's an art design or whatever, whatever. I want to know that they, they've had to do something that made them money. I remember my first job, my very first job. Somebody said, what was it? I said, my very first job was, I was five years old and I lived in a third floor apartment in a town city. It was a big blizzard. And next to this third floor apartment was a mansion in my mind's eye. And I went over there with my shovel and shoveled six inches of snow, I'm guessing. Maybe it was two. I was five years old. And I shoveled, <laughs> this, I shoveled the snow off, this, off these steps in the porch. Just did it. And this woman answered the door. And I thought she was ancient. She was probably 30. And she was obviously the, the woman that lived there or whatever. And she said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm shoveling the snow off of your porch. And she says, what do you want? And I said, 50 cents. And she gave it to me. That was my first job. <laughs> nice. Entrepreneur wish- from the start. Those things are so important. As you say, for character building, you talk about that guy with the one-page res- resume. I mean, it's those skills that people forget to look for that are so important. And resilience, or AQ as it's known as well, grit and yeah. determination. Like you talk about rejection. I mean... Those people are used to it. I mean, sports people are used to it because that's oh, part sure, of totally. what it is. I mean, do you think a major league baseball player or a professional player of any sport on national television or in a stadium in front of thousands of people in a basketball court in the last minute of the game wants to miss the shot? Do you think they want to miss the foul shot? They want to strike out? They want to shoot the soccer ball 10 feet to the left? Do you think they want to do that? Anything but. They're trying their best to do it. And that deserves recognition in my book. They at least tried to do it. People don't want to make mistakes. They don't want to screw up the companies they work for. On the contrary, they want to do a good job. They get up every day and they say, no one gets up in the morning and says, let me go in and sabotage my company. Let me go in and make a mistake in front of everybody. Let me look like a fool. No one does that. And that's why managers have to take that into account and help people do the right thing. It's, it's just so common sense, and to me at least. And that's why you see great coaches of the little kids playing, teaching them to play soccer or whatever. They don't yell at the kid when the kid kicks the ball and misses it. They say when the kid makes a nice pass, they say, great play, great play. They catch the good things. They don't harp on the negative things. I wish all of my clients, the CEOs and all the top brasses, if they hadn't, I wish they had all carried the bag, a sales bag, for their own company for at least two weeks. At least see the job through the salesperson's eyes. Walk into the customer and the customer says, here are your products from last week. They're all leaking. Take them back and take this invoice and throw it down the toilet. I wish they'd all seen that once. Or the, or the salesperson that, you know, scheduled all these calls and drives 80 miles, rainy blizzard, gets there, and the guy's not there because there was a, a, a traffic problem or something. I wish they'd all experienced that. You know, so I say yeah. to our guys, rejection is part of the game. You should get rejection. I remember this. I remember making a sales call. I had a job working for what is now a division of Procter & Gamble. Yeah, called Richardson Vicks, and we sold things like sinus, sinus tabs and 
Formula 44 and all kinds of like over-the-counter drug things. And I had the state of Nebraska. And I walked in this guy, and I'm a hardened, hardened pro. I've been on the job three weeks. And um, I walked in this drugstore because we sold to the drugstores. This guy standing up, uh, uh, kind of a, like an above perch kind of thing, counting pills or whatever they, they do. And there's a lot of folks walking around inside the store, this drugstore. It's like 10 o'clock in the morning. And I walk in. I say, hey, I'm Jeffrey Fox. And I'm with a, he looks at me. He turns red. And he screams at the top of his lungs and pointing to the front door, get out. <laughs> he screamed yeah. it. And all the women turn around and look at this guy. And this is the truth. I remember this as long as I can. I'm biting my tongue not to laugh because I know this guy <laughs> is going to buy more product from me than he's ever bought in his life before. And he did. He doesn't even know me. I've never met him. What's rejection? What's the difference? Yeah. And that, that idea of, of um, you talk about, it's always worth a shot on go as well. Like that, that's such, that resonated with me massively. And then, you know, you know, you're going to fail if you take more shots. It reminds me of that Michael Jordan quote that, that I missed more shots than everyone else, but that means I took more shots. Yeah, exactly. A shot on goal is never a bad play. I think it's attributed to Wayne Gretzky, the great uh, uh, National Hockey League soc- hockey player. He said, you know, a thousand percent of the shots I didn't take didn't go in. <laughs> you got to take yeah. a shot on goal. You pre-plan it. You practice it. You try your hardest. You miss it. You start all over. No problem. Yeah, I'd love to finish with dollarization because dollarization is something that so many right. people miss. I made up the word dollarization. And what it basically means is that every product benefit, every service benefit, we're lighter, faster, smaller, quicker, whatever the benefit is, can always be quantified and dollarized. Always, without exception. And if it's a new product and you dollarize it and you find that your value uh, is way below your price, you may not want to launch the product. But most people's products are underpriced undervalued because they don't know how to dollarize the value. Uh, let me give you a specific illustration. I had a client that sells a, um, a motor for $6,000. There's a Japanese competitor that sells a motor for $5,000. And every year for 12 years, a client has bid on this big project where they cut down timber and whatnot for these, whatever the company buys, they, they use these things to cut down timber. And every year they've lost the lost the deal, and the customers always said to them, you know, we know your product is better, but they end up buying on the lower price. And so I worked with them. What does better mean? Well, better means that my client's particular motor, due to uh, a technical kind of bearing or something, lasts 50% longer than the competitor in this environment. So let's say the competitor lasts a year My guy lasts 18 months. So that means in 36 months, the customer would have to buy two of my client's products at $6,000 a piece or $12,000, would have to buy three of the competitors at $5,000 or $15,000 a piece. So in a dollarized value, even though my client's product was $1,000 higher price, it was actually $3,000 lower cost over the period of time that they needed these motors. 
And that's what dollarization is about. It's turning a customer's advertising claims, product claims, stronger, faster, bigger, lighter, last longer, more robust, whatever. You see a million of them into quantified facts and then dollarized. And that's what a Rainmaker does. A Rainmaker sells the dollarized value the customer is going to get from investing in the product. Rainmakers sell money. They sell money. They price to value. And that's at every level of the company, from the president on down. If you have a product that's got a value, you price it to the value, not to the cost of the ingredients, not to the cost of manufacturing, not, not to a competitive market price, not to a target gross margin, you price to value. And dollarization helps to do that. And the book is called The Dollarization Discipline. I'll put a brag on it, but because it was like one of the top 30 books of the year when it came out. But it's really about understanding value and how to turn claims, product claims, into money. What I find with your books is they're those those type of books that you just have around and you pick up and you read a chapter because you'd read it like the chapters are short purposely. I know you did this purposely so people can pick up principles through a story. And it's one of those ones that you do need to read time and time again until it gets into your blood and becomes part of how you do business. You can read them backwards or forwards. They're really essays. It takes somebody 60 to 90 minutes to read a book or to listen to it. 90 minutes is what they are on audio because it's 245 tapes, I think. If you cannot read my book in 90 minutes, my books in 90 minutes, you got to go to phonics class. My books are, <laughs> I mean, they're, they're, they're simple sentences. They're straightforward. There's no nuance. There's no theory. There's no kind of what did the guy mean? It's right there in front of you. And they're not done with research. They're done with observations of what happens in the real world. And I write the books, original two or three books were written for me and my people and my family. Why did it? And I certainly didn't want my family to fail. That was my book, How to Become CEO. That was my first book. Um, It was written for my kids. Do I want them to fail? Uh Uh-uh. Do I want How to Become a Rainmaker? Do I want the guys that work for me that sell to fail? No. Do this and you will succeed. That's my my personal, absolute 100% belief in my books. Yeah, and that really comes across, Jeffrey. And now, I, I said I'd do this. How are you doing for time? I'm fine. Okay, great. I'd love to know about your background and, and how you got to where you are, because you run Fox & Company and you're a sales consultant for many, many firms across the years. Could you tell us a little bit about you? I grew up in a small town, a single mom household, got a full scholarship to college, got very young into Harvard Business School, Started working for three companies. Uh, when I started Fox and Company, all three of my prior companies became clients the first week. Um, and we're all about helping our customers increase their gross margin sales. We do that by helping them raise their prices because they can now dollarize their value. We help the salespeople overcome price objections to make the sale with fewer calls. We help our clients innovate in many, many ways. My business constantly changes because my clients change, and and now I'm kind of consigliere to CEOs on all kinds of issues outside of sales and marketing or on acquisitions or on 
key personnel, new products, markets, and all that kind of stuff. I've been in the game. You know, I, I worked for some great, great companies, consumer packaged goods companies and that kind of thing. And Fox and Company, original idea was I would use the skills and disciplines of consumer packaged goods marketers, which are a thousand times better than business-to-business marketers, and apply those skills to business-to-business companies. And I thought when I first started the company that, you know, when you drive down the road and you see uh, billboards that no one can read at 60 miles an hour and salespeople are totally unprepared and new products that are ill-conceived and great products that are underpriced, I thought that companies would just beat a path to my door. And as it turns out, only the good companies do. Companies that you would not think would be interested in someone with our skills. You would think it would be the poor com- companies that are screwing up and who are failing and stuff. But no, it's it's the good companies. And the companies that we work with are really good companies. Caterpillar, Parker Hannafin, some that people know. One of the things, what, what services do you offer with Fox & Company? I think the thing that maybe people in the audience might be most interested in is we have a, uh, a Rainmaker training program that teaches people how to dollarize and so forth. And uh, we do it a uh, blended learning, it's called, online plus live assessment sessions. And we're doing that with a couple of you know international companies, especially if English is a strong second language, which it is with many, many companies around the world. And so we teach people, they save a lot of money. They don't have this, you know, venue sales training and all that kind of stuff. And they increase the productivity because we actually show them live online you know, how to close specific accounts. And so yeah. it's, it's a, it's a killer program. Everybody can find you at boxingcompany.com and all the books are listed there as well. They're on Amazon and the audio books are available as well. Pleasure talking to you. All the best to you. Thanks so Bye. much.